You know, every year on the Sunday before Easter, we read through this story of betrayal and arrest and trial and crucifixion. And in their accounts of Jesus' crucifixion, the four Gospels relate essentially the same series of events, but with varied selection on the exact details and of Jesus' words. They were, after all, writing to different audiences with differing perspectives. Matthew and Mark, for example, years A and B of the three-year lectionary cycle, record only one prayer from the cross. Jesus crying out at about the ninth hour, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A fulfillment of Psalm 22.1, which we read today, and it's just full of parallels to the crucifixion. This is often called the prayer of desolation. But it's difficult, isn't it, to understand in what sense Jesus could possibly have been forsaken by God. I mean, it's certain that God approved his work. It's, it's certain that Jesus was innocent. He had done nothing to forfeit his father's favor. And as God's own son, holy, blameless, undefiled, and obedient, it's certain that God still loved him. In none of these senses could God have forsaken him. We read this about Messiah today from the prophet Isaiah. Chapter 53, verses 4 and 5. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Galatians 3.13 tells us that Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law, having been made a curse for us. He was made a sin offering, and he died in our place on our account so that he might bring us near to God. It was doubtless this that intensified his suffering, and part of why he asked this awful question. It was the manifestation of God's detestation of sin, in some unexplained way that Jesus experienced in that terrible hour. God, for the first time in eternity, looking away from Jesus and the sin that he bore, a kind of suffering Jesus had never experienced and something he never will again. <laughs> The suffering he endured was due to us. And it's that suffering by which we can be saved from eternal death. And in those awful moments, as, as evil men were allowed to do whatever they wanted to Jesus, our Lord expressed his feelings of forsakenness, a bond, an attachment that had never, ever been broken. Jesus taking on the sins of the world and just for a time feeling the desolation of being unconscious of his father's immediate presence.
It was at this time. <laughs> yes, it was at this time that um, Seth had to leave the room. <laughs> yeah, just, just remember, if the church ain't crying, it's dying. So we're, we're happy when it is, although the parents probably are not. It was at this time, it tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21, that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Thanks be to God. That's Matthew and Mark, years A and B. But this year, year C, we're reading from Luke. And for his own reasons, he does not record that prayer. Luke was a doctor. He was a Gentile. He was writing to his friend Theopolis and other God-fearing Greeks. And his writing is actually marked by sober restraint. And it's more a factual account of what, what, what went on. It's got more, pardon the kind of pun here, but more surgical precision and less rhetorical flourish and emotion than the other Gospels. But even so, it brings us some deep insight. It's from crucifixion, one of the most painful executions ever devised by man, that we derive the word excruciating. Excruciation literally means from the cross. It's a common, probably overused word today, but it's aptly descriptive. I'd bet that nearly everyone in this room has experienced some kind of pain in your life that you'd describe as excruciating, or nearly so. Whether it's betrayal at the hands of someone you love or trust, or diagnosis, or crushing circumstances, you've probably been there. We'll sometimes even use the word cross to help us describe these times. Jesus, though, was always teaching, always modeling, even in his dying. And it's his two excruciating prayers, literally from the cross, that Luke records that I believe can help us immensely when our own crosses come. The first is, amazingly, for his murderers, Chapter 23, verse 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Jesus asked God the Father to forgive the very people who were putting him to death. Jewish leaders, Roman officials, and soldiers, and bystanders. And God answered that prayer by opening the way of salvation even to Jesus' murderers. Jesus in his, excruci his excruciation, looked at the people responsible for it and said, forgive them. But did they know what they were doing? I mean, it sure seems like it, but only in part. I mean, Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, um, you know, their job was to safeguard the Jewish faith and to avoid an uprising. Steve, I think you covered this last week when you were talking about crowd control. This is basically what they were after. Pilate and the Roman authorities, that's, that, their mandate was simple, control things. Ensure conformity and peace at any cost. So both groups 
actually, were totally sold out to the idea that they were on the right side of history, that they were doing the right thing. But this brief prayer from the cross, just seven words in Greek, gives us a piercing insight into human nature. We know from John 1 that Jesus is the one through whom all things were created. So it makes sense that in John 2.25 it says that Jesus didn't need any testimony about mankind for he knew exactly what was in each person's heart. He knew well the truth of Jeremiah 17.9 that the human heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. And who can know it? Which means, who's the easiest person for you to fool? You. I just love that Tim Keller said, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And it's the first part of that quotation that I want to think about just for a second. Because here's the insight. None of us knows the full extent of our sin or the depth of harm that we do to others. We can never fully know and they can never fully know. And understanding this one reality about ourselves ought to make us both undyingly grateful for the forgiveness that we have received and ready to forgive others when they have wronged us. And why is this so important? Because our own forgiveness is linked to our forgiveness of others. If you say, I cannot forgive a person, it might be understandable, but you are actually on dangerous ground. We say this every week in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses, what? As we forgive those who trespass against us. Matthew 6.14, just after this, is actually even more sobering because Jesus follows up the Lord's Prayer with, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. These are sobering words. Forgiveness can be excruciating, but it is required. And I believe understanding this reality of human nature can help us immensely. We often don't know what we're doing or the harm that we've caused, and neither do they. And by the way, just for the sake of clarification, because I grew up in a faith tradition that conflated these things, forgiveness does not necessarily mean restoration. There are relationships that are dangerous and toxic and which we should avoid. But that doesn't mean we can't forgive the person that has done that. I myself had a, a friend who hurt me over years, repeatedly, ask for my forgiveness. And I, I had to say, yeah, I forgive you, but we can't, we can't have the same level of friendship that we used to have. Because I have a hard time entrusting my heart to you. So, we, we have to remember that forgiveness does not necessarily mean restoration. It's good if it does, but it doesn't have to. The second excruciating prayer 
is most often called the prayer of relinquishment. In verse 46, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This, this is a prayer that actually comes from Psalm 31, verse 6. It, if you pray Compline at all from the, the Book of Common Prayer, it is a prayer, prayer that you would pray nearly every night. It was a bedtime prayer, most commentators think, for Hebrew children and their parents in the first century. And it's a prayer that they prayed over and over and over again. Uh, by the way, I just have to say, there are no such things as rote prayers. There are only rote hearts. But despite a deep sense of forsakenness, Jesus expresses complete confidence that God would never abandon him in this prayer. How would he gain that confidence? Practice throughout his ministry, his whole life, in the wilderness, in his prayers, at Gethsemane. So from the cross, Jesus also offers to his ob habitually what he'd simply been practicing all along, putting his life completely into his father's hands. Most of you know that in a very part-time way, uh, I am a, a flight instructor. And um, it, the, the process of going through that is pretty rigorous, but in my final uh, practical test with an FAA examiner in the airplane, he pushed me on something. Um, one of the things that we require of our students, that the FAA requires, is a, what they call a positive three-way exchange of controls. Because you always want to know who's flying the airplane. <laughs> um, so, so we, from the very first flight, instruct our students that if they are giving the control of the airplane to me, they will say, it's your airplane. I will repeat to them, it's my airplane. And they will say, it's your airplane. That's three, three ways. So also, if they do something dumb, I just have to say, my airplane. And I've got control. Now, we do that every single time we change control of the airplane. So by the time something possibly very serious is happening, it's habit for the student to release control of the airplane to the flight instructor just by saying, my airplane. We want our students to have kind of complete confidence in I do, in me as an instructor, so that when there's a real emergency, there's no fight, no struggle. It's just habit. And not to be at all trite, but this prayer is kind of a way of saying, oh God, I take my own sticky fingers off the controls and put my life in better hands than mine. Now I want to be, I also have to issue a word of, of, of um, clarification here. This isn't at all about giving up agency in your life. You still must act. It is about dropping the illusion of control. They're different things. But it's not quite that straightforward. It's not simply about deciding to do so. You can't just decide to relinquish control. Like, you know, Michael Scott in uh, the office when he decided to declare, he needed to declare bankruptcy, he literally stood up and declared <laughs> bankruptcy. No, there's a process. Because the fact is you'll never relinquish control 
you'll never relinquish yourself completely to someone in whom you do not have complete confidence. And how do you gain that confidence? Well, like Jesus and like anything else in life that's meaningful, experience, practice, not rocket science. Daily practice, relinquishing smaller things like petty grievances and unhealthy desires, unhelpful behaviors, fruitless self-preoccupation, which is one of the main reasons that we practice Lent, by the way. Because what does practice make? Habit. That's exactly right. And that's what we see in Jesus on the cross. The habit of relinquishment. Very much like how you get to Carnegie Hall. Practice, practice, practice. Maybe you feel like you're bearing right now something like a cross. If you're not, you will be because crosses always come. That's the bad news. The good news is that we don't have to just be stronger, try harder, and stoically bear crosses ourselves. In fact, part of the reason Jesus died is that we cannot bear them ourselves. We need a helper, a substitute. Not always, but many times, the crosses that we face involve the risk of pain or humiliation. But Jesus faced the ultimate cross, not at the risk of these things, but at the cost of his life. And because of that, we can have the confidence with practice to entrust our ordinary crosses completely to him. <coughs> Suffering, disappointment, failure, betrayal, criticism, or hardship. We can face these things with the deep security that he will never abandon us with the firm knowledge that Jesus was forsaken so that we would never be. The cross is proof of that. In the name of the Father and of the Son.